data. Every agency generates it. Data is best used when it's shared, combined for new insights and applications. But data sharing is not as simple as it sounds. New research from the industry-supported Center for Data Innovation outlines six possible strategies for sharing your data. We get more now from the director of the Center for Data Innovation, Daniel Castro. Dan, good to have you back. Good to be here. All right. Well, tell us about this research because data sharing is a term that's used glibly and frequently. Let's share data. We need better data sharing. If we knew this, if we shared this data, we'd have this application. But tell us about some of the subtleties you have outlined in a new white paper about data sharing. Well, what we tried to do here is, is really outline how, as much as we talk about the importance of data, you know, the United States is still so far behind in terms of actually creating this you know, rich data ecosystem where the right data can get to the right person at the right time. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And some of it is kind of societal and, and social, and some of it's really technical and economic. And so in this paper that we put out, we really try and go through and look at where the barriers are right now today in terms of why we aren't sharing data as much as we could be or probably should be to get use of all of this information that's out there, and then what we can do to start addressing those problems. Often, federal agencies state that it is statutory prohibitions on this agency sharing data with that agency that's the problem. But if the law doesn't say you can't, then it strikes me that, well, you can. Well, that's one of the issues that comes up again and again. I mean, there are some specific laws that say you can't share certain data and that becomes an issue. There's also just a reluctance on the part of many government agencies to share data in many cases or to sometimes collect data that they might otherwise be able to collect from either the private sector or industry. And this isn't always personal information that we're talking about. Sometimes this is sensor data. It's business data. It's, it's other data that's out there that has just enormous positive social value. And we need to have somebody creating the technical infrastructure and the economic incentives to allow this data sharing to happen. All right. And you also have outlined like six basic regimes for data sharing or six strategies, I guess you'd call them. Maybe briefly, what are they? Sure. So the first one is fixing these data protection laws we have to reduce these legal barriers. So just get that out of the way. Most of the laws were written at a time when there wasn't a lot of data collection going on. You know, if you go back to 1974, the Privacy Act for the federal government, you know, these laws were intended for kind of small data where there was a little bit of data collected and we knew we didn't want to share all that data back out. That's changed. You know, now many agencies are collecting data. They should be collecting more data. And it's often good if they can share data across agency boundaries. And that's right now where there's a lot of barriers in Europe and other places. They have this idea of collect once where you don't have to have the individual or business submit data multiple times. So that's one area. Another issue is trying to figure out if we can create some model data sharing contracts in these different sectors like healthcare or financial services, where we want to have the government encourage more data sharing. They can pave the way by basically handing a legal document out to the private sector and saying, if you want to share data under these existing laws, here's how you can do it. So just lowering those barriers. There's also, if you think about from the consumer side, every year I get a notice from my bank or credit card saying, this is how we protect your privacy. And if you don't want to share data, here's how you can opt out. You get lots of those notices. You get those at the doctor's office. You never get the opposite notice saying, hey, if you want to share data for research, for other kind of beneficial purposes, here's a reminder of how you can share data. If you want to donate your data, here's how you can do that. So we need to kind of flip the mental model about how we're approaching this. And it's not that everyone has to share their data. It's that it can be voluntary and it can go either way. 
Some people don't want to share their data. Some people do. Let's give them the choice and let's empower them. So there's a number of areas like that. And, you know, I'll just mention also, you know, data standards and particularly high impact areas. This is something that's really hard to do. I mean, it's an area where government can do a lot to really streamline how data sharing occurs because so much of this is just being put on the private sector. But we're ultimately talking about a public interest. And that's where the government can help make sure we're investing to its potential. We're speaking with Daniel Castro, director of the Center for Data Innovation, part of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And could it be, though, that there's maybe a technical problem here? And that is very often people want to share or agencies want to share data, but they don't want the personally identifiable part of it to be shared. And there are methodologies and technologies that can anonymize data. Could it be that that's just not simply a widely enough adopted discipline and therefore it gets in the way of sharing the rest of the data, which might be all you really need? That's right. There's a lot of technical solutions, whether it's anonymizing data or doing federated learning, where instead of collecting all the data in one central place and doing the analytics, you do the analytics where the data is stored and then just bring in the results so that you never have to give up that personal information or have it leave a device or an agency. There's a number of technical solutions and a lot of federal agencies don't have those expertise in-house, or there's just reluctance to do it because if they do it, they're kind of taking on a risk. What if we do it incorrectly? And so, you know, there's this kind of reluctance to do anything in, in that space. And that's where we're saying, you know, we need to keep pushing and we need to make it clear that this is the expectation that agencies share data and address these problems. And you can't just kind of hide behind these outdated rules and regulations. And what about the question of data literacy? Because very often to get a result you want, you need a data expert to tell you, well, this is the data you actually need, whereas someone that just knows what their outcome is desired may not really understand the data implications of getting to that outcome. That's right. I think it's underappreciated how important data is to solving different problems, whether it's in you know something like education, where there are so many different initiatives that are out there. And, you know, a simple question is, are these initiatives effective? You know, you need to know if you do a intervention in preschool or an intervention to provide free lunches in middle school, you know, what does that mean in terms of outcomes 10 years down the road? That takes enormous amount of data collection because you have to link somebody receiving this intervention in middle school to 10 years down the road when they're in a workforce database, or maybe you're looking at the impact it has on prison and the judicial system. There's so many interactions here, and there's so much that we should be gleaning from all these different programs to see what's effective and what's not. Let's have a well-functioning government. And you need data to do all that. And that takes data literacy, that takes skills. And you know, data literacy is on both sides of that equation, right? It's data literacy in the government so that they're thinking about how to use this. It's also data literacy just in our communities so that we understand why data is being collected about us and how it's coming back to help us in the end. And the result of all the barriers and the alphabetically named prohibitions like HIPAA. I mean, HIPAA gets spread on things like peanut butter, and it's probably not nearly as dangerous a prohibition as it's made out to be, but that's where we are. What that's all led to is agencies simply reluctant to share their data because it's mine and not yours. Is that also part of the issue? And I think you addressed that in the paper. That is. I mean, so many of these laws are out there, and there's not good guidance on even when a law like HIPAA, which allows data sharing, it's still mostly seen as a law that doesn't enable data sharing. And that's what the average person knows. That's what the average person in government thinks as well. And it's it's almost like a, a game of telephone where, you know, the lawmakers originally wrote the law saying you could do some data sharing, 
but you know, there's all these restrictions and then people just kept repeating the restrictions. And now the end result is if you have health data, your main concern is how do I not get fined for violating HIPAA? And that's the model. And, and that's where, you know, we have to really think about what's the end goal. It's not just protecting patients' privacy. It's also protecting patients, giving them better health care. And the only way to do that is by figuring out which interventions are effective and how we can, you know, recall dangerous drugs quickly and, and do all these things that you do with data. Well, it's a great paper and I commend people to read it. Daniel Castro is director of the Center for Data Innovation. That's part of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance 
And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this 
particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.